1 Samuel chapter 12. If you'll turn there with me as we continue our study through 1 Samuel together. These are certainly, if you read ahead, some difficult sections uh, in not only the book of Second uh, Samuel, uh, but uh, certainly difficult sections uh, in the Word of God as a whole. Uh, I think the Bible in some ways is very clearly inspired sometimes by nothing other than the fact that just the genuine raw honesty that the Word of God presents to us at times. I mean, in these chapters alone, 2 Samuel uh, 12 and 13, uh, we, we find references to uh, things that show just the fractured reality of human nature. We find adultery and, and we find murder. We find rape and incest. I mean, things that we would think, my goodness, uh, you would think that if somebody was writing a book and it was man-made, you'd want to kind of whitewash and keep some of those more difficult subjects. We even see the the death of a child uh, in these chapters and how that's processed uh, by David as he loses a child. And so, again, very difficult things, things that happen in our world, a lot of things to which Quite honestly, I think until we step into eternity, we're not going to have the answers to why in regards to a lot of these things. They fall under the sovereignty of God. I don't think we should try and give quaint and simple explanations, but things that happen on this earth because it's a fallen place with uh, sin having plagued our world and plagued humanity. We're a fractured people and these things happen and come to pass. And you remember from our study last time, we didn't get all the way through chapter 12. We went down as far as verse 13, where David came to this place of the confession of his sin and really a process of repentance and hearing that God's forgiveness was there. Remember the backdrop, King David has committed adultery not only committed adultery, but actually with one of the officers from his own military uh, wife. And to make matters worse, not only did he have sexual relations with one of his officers' wives, but she actually became pregnant in the process. And then rather than just confess his sin and bring it into the open right away and immediately repent, David then sought to hide his sin. And for at least a time of about nine months, maybe almost a year, David, through multiple efforts, sought to cover his sin and to hide the error of his ways and the wrongdoing. He made multiple attempts to try and cover his sin in different ways. When none of those works, he then ultimately became so desperate, he acted up, actually ended up murdering uh, the husband of the woman who he had had adultery with and impregnated and then married her to try and further cover what took place and make it look like that the child was the result of a quick marriage and a a legitimate relationship that they had had sometime shortly afterwards. And for almost a year, David hid his sin. He kept it covered. Psalm 32 describes the misery that he was in the whole time that he was covering his sin, how the hand of God was heavy upon his life, the, how he felt like his strength was just sapped from his life. He was miserable because it is a miserable place to hide and to not deal with our wrongdoing uh, when it's buried in our conscience. That's almost more torture than facing the consequences and the realities of when we've done what's wrong. But God being aware of what happened and being displeased gave David, it seems, a season of time to repent, to come clean, but when David didn't, ultimately, God loved him too much to let him continue in his hidden and covered sin, and God ultimately exposed him, sent Nathan the prophet to him. Remember, Nathan rebuked David and brought David to a place of brokenness and a place of confession and really what became genuine repentance 
at that point in his life. Now, just to reacquaint ourselves, if you look with me back, let's go back into verse 9. This is really that reproof and David's confession. It tells us that the prophet of God sent to David and, and spoke these words to him, 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword and taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me, God said, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel before the son. So we notice that the prophet of God, as he's rebuking David, is beginning to tell David that there would be consequences that he's going to experience for his sin, which were inevitable. Verse 13, this prompted David then to just make a sincere, a sincere confession. Nathan said to David, the, or David, excuse me, said to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. So, so just the most clear cut, direct uh, expression of a confession notice no explanation no justification just complete ownership acknowledging what he did in psalm 51 when david writes out his confession there in length he says against thee and thee only have i sinned and done this evil in thy sight did david's sin certainly cause hurt and harm to other people absolutely uh, it, it hurt the people who were involved but ultimately david understood god it's you I'm ultimately accountable to you to, and, and it's you that I've committed this sin against. And so he says, look, it is what it is. I, I've sinned and I've sinned against the Lord. And notice the moment that there was brokenness, the moment there was a broken and contrite heart, which is what God's looking for when we sin, that alone. And there was a genuine confession of sin, taking ownership of it, admitting it, acknowledging what he had done and that there was repentance the instantaneous forgiveness of God flooded into David's life and was available to him. He says, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. So instantly, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God became available. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us that he who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And that's exactly what we see happening here. When David was covering his sin, it wasn't working. Things were miserable. It was a mess. God is never going to bless undealt with sin in our lives. Never. Uh, it would contradict his character. It would send an a, a incorrect message. We may wrongly believe that somehow God's going to let it slip by or God's okay with it. And we may live in that deception for a time, but God will never bless when there is undealt with sin in our life to some degree that we are clearly conscious of. But notice the moment that there was confession, the moment there was just an acknowledgement and admittance, Lord, this is what's been going on. It is wrong. I openly acknowledge it. I take ownership and responsibility for it. And I want to repent of it and change. 
automatically the forgiveness of the Lord is there. There's, there's kind of no uh, you know, time out period where God says, well, let me think about that. There, just there's instant forgiveness, instant mercy. This was something that was a capital crime. David could have died for this, but God chose to use David's life as a, an example of his mercy. But notice the consequences were still attached to this. Though forgiveness was available, the consequences of his sinful actions would still come. And that's just a reality. Forgiveness is available when we confess our sin. And certainly 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, God always has a just basis to faithfully forgive any sin that we've committed any time we come to him and we confess our error. Because of the work of Christ being fully sufficient, he has a just basis to always faithfully forgive us. Yet, that does not guarantee that there is, however, going to be a removal of the consequences. Because consequences for our wrongdoing and reaping what we sow is just a natural reality that comes to pass. And listen, those consequences are intended to actually be helpful in our lives. They have a corrective measure to keep us from going back down the wrong path once again in our lives. And it's those consequences and the bad fruit that actually is something that serves a productive uh, you know, work in my life to keep me from wanting to repeat those same mistakes again. It's the absence of consequences that many times causes people to just go right back down the same trail again. Uh, and so David here would experience for a season some consequences of his choices. There would be lingering pain and problems in his family. We read there in verses 9 through 12 how the sword would not depart from his house. We'll see that as we go on in these chapters. There would be continuous painful things in his family life between the siblings and David and his own children. His own children would dishonor and actually oppose him. They would become opposed to David. Absalom will rebel against him and there'll be this tension that arises and his children will have a lack of respect and show dishonor towards him for a siege in his life. And David would deal with a level of public shame. God said, you did this secretly, but what Absalom is going to do to you is actually going to take place in the broad daylight. He's going to shame you before the people of Israel. Now, as verse 14 comes about, he's just heard God forgives him, but notice there are other consequences that would be attached to this. Verse 14, your sins put away, David, you're not going to die. First word of verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed back to his house. So notice two other consequences of David's sin. One, the people of the world would begin to mock the Lord and would begin to really question God's reality. He says, David, because of who you are, because of your identity and your position, you have now given cause and reason by what you've done for the enemies of the Lord to now blaspheme God to question God's reality. And so what's up with the God of Israel? I thought this was one of his followers and how could I? And, and, and I think knowing David's love for the Lord, that probably, just a stab here, above all the other consequences, was probably one of the most painful consequences that David had to live with in his heart. That he actually brought shame and dishonor to the name of the Lord. 
And I think because of his love for the Lord to think that he had given occasion for the enemies of God to now blaspheme the Lord because of his actions and his failure as a follower of the Lord, that probably broke David's heart more than many of the other things even that he had to go through uh, in comparison. And another consequence we see as well, sadly, is the child that had been conceived between him and Uriah's wife Bathsheba, the Bible says as the result of these things would then fall sick and experience an early death and a departure from this life. He says the child who is born is actually going to die. So Nathan now departs, the message is over, and verse 15 goes on to say, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. Now notice the continuous reference is not referring to Bathsheba by name, but the Holy Spirit continues to call her notice Uriah's wife. Because see, from God's perspective, he, as the sin had still had its existence, he kept bringing this to remembrance. This is Uriah's wife. The way that this happened, it was outside of God's design. It was sinful. So the Lord now allows the child to fall ill, it says. And look at verse 16. It says, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And so the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. So take notice here. You can tell, I think, to some degree that David is genuinely repentant, even by looking at his actions at this point here. Uh, for example, all of a sudden we notice that there's a transition that's happened. Prior to this time, David was living in an extremely selfish way. He satisfied himself with a night of pleasure with a woman who was not his wife. He then selfishly sought to cover up his sin. He then selfishly murdered an innocent man who was a loyal comrade and officer in his military. And up to this point, prior to this time, David had been very selfish and self-serving. But now notice there's this transition in his brokenness. You can tell he's broken and repentant. Because now David, it says, is pleading with God and fasting and praying for an entire week and refusing to eat. The picture here is David, in his brokenness, is completely on the opposite. And now he's making personal sacrifices. He's refusing to eat for an entire week. His, his life is just consumed with what is in the best interest, not of himself, but of this innocent child. And of the woman who's conceived and given birth to this child and his heart is broken and gripped with the reality of these things that are coming to pass. And now David really being completely self-sacrificing, which I think is a demonstration of repentance, that one of the ways you can tell when someone's truly become repentant is it's not about them anymore. It's all about the others and other individuals who are influenced and impacted by their mistakes and this transition happens in their heart where they're willing to make whatever sacrifice they need to make to try and make amends somehow. And this is what you see happening in David here. He's now pleading. You can see him begging God, Lord, I know what I did was wrong and, and please have mercy, Lord. And he's crying out for God to spare this child who's now fallen ill and seems to have some mortal illness. And he also manifests his dedication to seeking God as he's fasting and praying for seven days. And again, you see this renewed dedication 
to God. So he's crying out to God, asking God to spare the child's life. But verse 18 says, on the seventh day, it came to pass, as God had predicted, that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. So the child dies after the seventh day of praying and pleading as any parent would be with a sick or an ill or a terminal child begging and pleading, wanting to see the child's life be spared. But the sovereignty of God, the child dies in the midst of that and now his servants recognize we now have to give a death notification to David that his child has died and to report this news to him and they're completely nervous and hesitant about making that notification because they say, oh my goodness, I mean, we saw what it was like and the condition, how distraught David was, how desperate David was, pleading and begging and fasting for seven days, pouring out his life, wanting to see his child spared and they say, now we have to tell him that the child has died and they're afraid that David would do some harm to himself. So there's just just legitimate concern. I mean, what if David does something harmful if he takes his own life just in desperation, understanding the gravity of what it is like because it is one of probably the most, above all other things, painful experiences to lose a child because nobody ever expects for their child to die before them. It's just a reverse order. That's why it's a very, very difficult thing to process. Everybody expects that their child will bury them. Nobody expects to bury their own child. And whether their child is a week old or eight weeks old or eight months old or or eight years old or 18 years old, the, the pain and the gravity of that is intense. And they're greatly concerned. How can we tell David about this? What if he does something to harm himself or to take his own life? And again, always a very difficult thing. If you've ever had to notify someone of a death before, I had to do this many, many times, not only pastorally, but with police chaplaincy ministry. It is not a pleasant thing. No matter how the circumstances are, it is a very, very difficult thing to have to report such a thing to an individual. So they're greatly concerned. But notice verse 19, they don't even have to report it fully because when David saw that his servants were whispering amongst themselves, he perceived, it says, that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they confirmed he is dead. So David, and this must have been shocking to them, they didn't expect this response, David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. So take notice David's response here. Very peculiar on the natural level. This would not be the response you would typically expect a person to make and certainly the way David had demonstrated such desperation and great concern emotionally, mentally, spiritually just in a place of desperation. Now the child has died. They're thinking David is going to just really just fall to pieces, fall apart at the seams and instead when David has confirmation that The child has died. It says that David gets up from the ground, washes himself off, cleans himself up, 
And it says the first thing he does, notice, is he went into the house of the Lord and he just begins to worship. Kind of reminds us of the heart of Job. Remember when Job lost everything and and not just a child, but Job lost multiple children. And Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and, And his response, David here, notice his response to coping with the loss of his child is, I don't have the answers I'm not going to fully understand why, but what you see here is David demonstrating just an acceptance by faith that the will of the Lord has been done. And David just shows here a submission to the will of God by just entering into the house of the Lord and just turning his heart and his eyes toward the Lord and worshiping here. And his perspective is really just a a, a very mature indication of where a heart is is that when it comes into spiritual maturity before the Lord. Listen, does it take away the the pain and the grief and the ramifications and the questions? Absolutely not. But I, I want you to see this is how David processed all this. In a time of great grief and hardship, his coping process was not to turn to other things that were unhealthy coping mechanisms or destructive behaviors. David just goes into God's house and he worships. And he says, if I'm going to grieve, I'm going to grieve in the midst of seeking God, worshiping God, being around the family of God, taking the support and and help that I can from God's people. And his actions reveal that he had just by faith humbly accepted the will of God. And and what a, a great encouragement for all of us to recognize in our lives that when we go through some tragedy or or form of grief or hardship or heartache listen i don't have the answers for why things like this take place a loss of a child a loss of a loved one you know maybe some horrific tragedy these things are a part of our existence and i think it is foolish to try and give little cheap answers to how these things happen and explanations. But I know this, that in these times, there's two things you can do. You can let it completely just break you or you can bend your knee and you can submit to God and you can by faith say, Lord, your will be done and and, and blessed be the name of the Lord and just worship your way through hardship. And I tell you this, you will not come out at a loss if you just worship your way through the hardship. And rather than run from the house of God or run from God or, or because, listen, your humanity a lot of times makes us want to detach. And so we think, oh, well, I don't want to no, I don't want to go to the house of God because I might get emotional there and I might cry before people. So what? This is a safe place. These are people who who love us and who can actually come alongside of us. And if we need to sit and worship with tears running down our face and and work our way through our challenges and difficulties, hey, there's no shame of face in that. There's no safer, healthier, better place to, to, to utilize as a place to cope and then to be in the presence of God and worship our way through it and just let the healing power of God's Spirit work through our life. And so David here just begins to worship the Lord and then he goes home and he resumes his normal activities. Notice he goes back to everyday life. He, to some sense, as much as he could, he tries to return to normalcy. He goes back and, and begins to eat food again. He's not punishing himself and, and starving himself. He's now partaking of meals again. And notice verse 21, his servant said to him, what is this that you have done? They, they find this unusual. 
Most people don't respond this way. What is this that you have done? And they say, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, then you arose and ate food. And he said, look at the response here. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? So David says, listen, when the child was still alive before he took his last breath, I figured as long as that child was still alive, I was going to beg and plead and, and ask God to spare the child's life. And, and who knows? He's saying, I don't understand the ways of God. Sometimes God chooses to be gracious to us. Sometimes God chooses to, to exercise his mercy in certain situations. And I, I may not have the answer to when and how that happens or why it does sometimes and why it does in others. But David said, you know, I, I figured I had nothing to lose. And so I was going to seek God and beg for mercy. And David said, I did that. And I thought, who knows, maybe God will, will be merciful to my sinful actions and he'll take away this consequence and spare the child's life and be gracious to me that the child may live. But verse 23, David shows you his, again, his resolve to the will of the Lord. And then a revelation that David gives to us. Well, he says, but now the child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So notice David's declaration there. David says, what has transpired has transpired. I have no power as a human being to change this situation any longer. The child has died. He's experienced the transition into the eternal dimension. And notice, David says, I can't bring him back. He's not going to return to me. But notice David's confidence. He says, but I shall one day go to him. Notice that David here shows his perspective and declaration shows that he had confident assurance that that child who had died had gone into the presence of the Lord, which David knew one day when he died as a believer, he would go into the presence of the Lord and that there was one day going to be a reunion awaiting him with his child who had died. And here David makes this declaration. I can't bring him back. That's beyond my human capacity. But he says, what I do know is that one day I'm going to get to go to him. One day I'm going to get to see that child and, and be in not only the presence of God, but, but there's a reunion awaiting. And here David found, I think, his comfort and consolation in this reality. And I think it is one of the things that helped him to cope and to carry on with living in his life. That he knew that there was this eternal reunion that was waiting. And what a wonderful thing that the word of God holds out to us in stories like this and other places, this blessed assurance that when a child dies, whether you know miscarried or, or at a young age and prior to a time when there's any ability to have accountability and understanding of the claims of the gospel and the need to accept Christ, that the Bible does seem to indicate to us clearly that, that child goes directly into the presence of the Lord. And that we can have that blessed assurance and that comfort that one day we will get to go into the eternal dimension, not just to be with the Lord, but to have reunion with that child if we have lost the child in some way through death. And what a wonderful consolation that is to help with the grieving process, to have that hope to hold on to, that heaven is a place of reunions. 
and that there is that future experience ahead and, and really a much longer time will be enjoyed than any short duration of any life that could be experienced together here on this earth. So David expresses his confidence in this way and, and gives us a great encouragement and comfort as well for our experiences. In verse 24, then it says, David afterwards comforted Bathsheba. Notice now the Bible refers to her his wife. So you can tell we're turning the corner here now because now she's not referred to as the wife of Uriah, but now his wife. And he went into her and he lay with her in the course of time. And she bore a son, another child, and they called his name, very interesting, notice, Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet and called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So in time, David and Bathsheba, now as a married couple, they conceive a child again. And notice that the child they conceive, they name him Solomon, which actually the name Solomon means peace. And perhaps David named him that because it was through the confession and the repentance and brokenness that the peace of God returned back to David's soul. And he realized, hey, I'm at peace with God now again. Things are right and my conscience is clear. But the Lord, notice, doesn't look disparagingly and doesn't despise this new child conceived through the relationship of David and Bathsheba. Though things started out in a wrong way, it says that when the second child was conceived, that the Lord expressly loved him and even sent a prophetic word through Nathan to come and to rename the child's name Jedidiah from God's perspective to reassure because that word Jedidiah means loved of the Lord. And I think no doubt here God was trying to encourage David and Bathsheba, listen, the way things started, yes, it was wrong. And it was improper and it was on an unhealthy foundation and it was sinful and really it was a mess. But really what God is trying to say is, but look, when there's been confession and repentance, there's the opportunity for the grace of God to begin to flow into a life into a situation, into a marriage, and after that repentance and reaping of consequences to a degree, here you begin to see, I think in these verses, God's restorative grace. And the restorative grace of God is just starting to flow back into David's life again, like just a torrent, a wave of the grace of God. And God, notice, God's not holding any grudge against David. He's not holding a chip on his shoulder. God has no animosity and God is not going to withhold his blessing from David's life for the rest of his life because of his past mistakes. Take notice, who is the son that, that they conceive? Solomon. I think most of us with some semi-familiarity of the Bible know who Solomon becomes. <laughs> and of all, David had multiple wives. Of all the wives that could have conceived the next king of Israel, the great King Solomon, God chose in his sovereignty that that child would come through the relationship of David and Bathsheba. I think just to purposely show his kindness and his grace and just to show David, listen, I got no grudge against you, David. Yeah, you messed up. You made a mess. But I can bless a mess. <laughs> if, if you confess, now I don't mean to keep rhyming here, sound like Dr. Seuss, if you just confess and repent and you're genuinely broken, I can take your failures and your mistakes and all the you know things that you have brought to the table that were so wrong 
And again, I can take them and I can mix them together and I can begin to let my grace pour over that and flow through that. And what a wonderful thing here after failure, if someone's heart is truly repentant, God can restore, God can bless their life again. God can begin to use them in incredible ways and God in loving and gracious intentions still wants to work in wonderful ways even through the greatest failures in our lives. And so we can fail and do some really foolish, unhealthy, miserable things and create quite a catastrophe. But if there's a genuine repentant heart, God says, listen, I'm not withholding any blessing in the next season. I can make the next season even more blessed. I can still work through you and use you and God is going to work through Solomon's life to accomplish incredible things and God can make the next stage of your life after your greatest failures. He can make the next stage of your life incredibly blessed and glorious and still use your life. And I think Solomon being born to David and Bathsheba is a clear testimony of that reality. So notice verse 26, it says, Joab at this point, David's general fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and he took the royal city. Remember, the people of Ammon had recently humiliated and shamed the men of Israel. So Joab sent messengers to David and said to him, now this is the kind of guy you want to have if you have a right-hand man. He says, hey, David, I fought against Rabbah and I've taken the city's water supply. Whatever you cut off the water supply, you cut off the ability of the city to function now therefore he says gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest i take the city and it be called after my name so notice joab does all the hard work (laughs) he does all the heavy lifting he's out on the battlefield as david's general fighting the battle he cuts off the water supply and all that needs to be done is one final advance to take over the city and then it will belong to israel But Joab says, David, listen, I'm about to take over the city. And if I take over the city, then I'm going to get the glory and my name is going to be attached to it. But he says, David, honestly, I don't want the glory for myself and for what I've done. You're the king and I want you to get all the glory. So come out here and finish the process and get all the glory. And I look at this and I think, man, what a great heart. But at the same token, what a great illustration of really how our heart ought to be towards our king, towards King Jesus that we may get to participate in the Lord's battles and do some of the Lord's work and have a great contribution in participating and serving God and his purposes. But at the end of the day, may God help us to always have a heart like reflected in Joab there where, where we don't want the glory and we don't want our name attached to it, but we want our King, Jesus, to get the glory and his name to be attached to any victory or any conquest or any good and successful thing that happens. So, Verse 29 says, David then gathered, therefore, all the people, went to Rabbah, and he fought against it and took it, led the final advance to conquer the city. And he took the king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold. That's somewhere maybe upwards to around 75 pounds, which is a pretty heavy crown, with precious stones. And it was set on David's head. Now, I don't think that means legitimately, because that probably would have snapped his neck if you put a 75-pound crown. But probably in a symbolic way, they would have kind of maybe come down and touched the head to just indicate and then you know, took it off as sort of a royal treasure, but acknowledging he conquered it and took that crown away. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and axes and made them cross over 
to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon, repaying them, no doubt, for what they had done to Israel. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So take notice here. I think this is a beautiful ending to this chapter and these things that have been going on in David's life. Because it shows something about David's maturity as well. And that's this, is that David accepted God's forgiveness. I want you to think about something. This guy committed adultery with one of his officer's wives. He got her pregnant. He then murdered her husband. He then tried to cover it for a year. Then there was an infant death as the result you want to talk about somebody who could have had a real guilt complex and fallen apart at the seams? And yet David accepts the forgiveness of God by faith, undeservingly, unworthily. The Lord said to him, David, I've put away your sin. You're pardoned. And David chose to believe it. And he accepted for himself the forgiveness of God to the fullest degree that he was cleansed and washed and it was purged and that God's favor and grace was towards him. And you can see that because David did not just allow himself to fall into self-pity and condemnation after his great, great failure and become paralyzed in guilt. But he went forward and he kept functioning. And I think the end of this chapter perhaps is given to us because what did David do? He accepted God's forgiveness and then he returned to the battle. He just went right out into the battlefield again. And David returned and got back to what he was supposed to be doing and he returned to the battle and God started granting David victories again because David returned to the battle. He got back to the battle. He got back to life again and God started bringing victories to his life again and letting him move forward and prospering as before. And I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that's really imperative because when we fail, sometimes one of the biggest stumbling blocks is we genuinely struggle with just receiving God's forgiveness and and just genuinely believing it and receiving it by faith. In such a way where we would receive it and say, you know what? I don't need to wallow in self-pity. I don't need to beat myself up in condemnation. What I need to do is appreciate the forgiveness and get back in the battle. And get back out there and begin to do what I know I'm supposed to be doing. And if you do that, the wonderful thing is God can begin to bring his victory and blessing back into your life again. And he can begin to work in gracious ways. And David here demonstrates that reality now chapter 13 records for us a very unfortunate event that happens after this time notice it says after this implying after this season of david's failure absalom the son of david had a lovely sister whose name was tamar and amnon the son of david loved her so again these are some of david's children from different wives of course we know absalom and tamar we know from the scriptures had the same mother, and Amnon had David as a father, but a different mother, but they were at least still half-brother and sister. And it says Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar. So here's something that begins to happen. Now it uses the word loved, but we're going to see in this chapter, this is the furthest thing from love, but Amnon had this unhealthy, unusual attraction to basically his sister. And verse 2 says, Amnon was so distressed 
over his sister Tamar that he became sick, physically ill, because he was so lovesick with desiring to have her sexually, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So he finds himself in this perplexing situation because he finds himself with this unhealthy, sinful attraction and desire for this beautiful sister that he has that he's sexually attracted to, but yet the reality is everyone knows, as it says here, this was improper. This was incest. It would be inappropriate. Again, the law of God clearly forbid these things. Leviticus 18 verse 9 states it this way. It says, The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Leviticus 20 verse 17 says this, If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. They shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his guilt. Deuteronomy 27 speaks of how this was a, a cursed thing to have relations with someone who was your sister, your sibling. And this is the dilemma that's beginning to happen here. Amnon finds himself struggling with his own strong passions and lusts and desire and facing the reality that he has this desire that is contradictory to the word of God and to what the law clearly stated. And there's this battle that's going on within him. And to some degree, listen, that's the same battle that goes on in all of our lives. Because we know the word of God states something is true and this is God's boundary and God's design. But sometimes we, in our perverseness, in the iniquity, the bentness of our human nature, have a desire for something contrary to the word of God. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to honor and submit our desire to the word of God or are we going to set aside the word of God to selfishly fulfill our sinful desire? And so Amnon finds himself in this dilemma, struggling with this lustful desire for his sister that was beautiful indeed, the Bible says. But verse 3, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab the son of Shemiah, David's brother, so it seems Uncle Jonadab, who was also a friend. And Jonadab was a crafty man. That's never a good kind of friend to have. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? So he says, What's the matter with you? You're the king's son. You're a son of a king. In fact, he was the oldest son of David, which would have meant he would be the one in line to be the first prince. And he says, you should be able to have whatever you want. You're a son of a king. Why are you getting sick and losing weight? What's the matter with you? And he answered and said to him, because I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, that should have been right there a red blinking light of the air of his ways. No, notice, he says, I love Tamar, my, he has to say it this way to make himself feel better, my brother Absalom's sister. Wait a minute. If he's your brother and she's his sister, that would mean, hello, she's also your sister. But see, when sinful cravings are driving us, it is amazing how distorted our perspective can become and how we can reason things and twist things and justify them. 
You know, I mean, I, I sit with couples at times who, you know, aren't married and they become sexually active. Well, well, we're married in our hearts. Mm, don't read that anywhere in Scripture. And, and, and it's amazing how we can distort and justify things when we have a sinful yearning for something, how we'll put a spin on it and a twist on it and we begin to rationalize and justify. Listen, that's what he's doing here. He can't bring himself to just say, I'm in love with, really, I, I have lust for my sister. He has to say my, my brother Absalom's sister. He's trying to tone it down to somehow make himself feel better to appease his own conscience. But this should have been a clear indication that something very unhealthy is going on inside of him. And he needs to repent of this and resist this unhealthy, ungodly desire within. But Jonadab, this is why you don't want crafty, ungodly friends, said to him, Listen, let me give you an idea. Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So, Jonadab, this is, listen, this is why you do not want, take note here, ungodly, unhealthy friends to be the ones giving you counsel for your life situations and struggles. Never a good thing because Jonadab here, rather than challenge Amnon's sinful desires and challenge his sinful nature, he actually helps him justify it and gives him this crafty, distorted plan to help fulfill his sinful passions. He says, listen, I, well, I, mean, I got an idea for you. Why don't you just pretend to be sick? And, and when your dad comes to visit, you say, hey, look, I'm really sick. And, you know, I mean, I mean, Tamar, she's the best cook in the family. Could you tell her to make some food and, and you know, bring by some chicken noodle soup and some of them really good cakes that she makes? And, and maybe it'll help me to feel better and, and try and create this deceptive situation to try and lure her in so that he can take advantage of her sexually. And force himself upon her. So again, beware. Let me encourage you. Beware of your acquaintances and who you seek counsel from. This is the time in a person's life where Amnon is, where he's struggling with his own sinful desires and the truth of the word of God. This is the time when you need a godly friend. Faith for the wounds of a friend. This is the time when you need a friend, not like Jonadab, but a friend who's going to say to you, yo, what are you thinking? I don't care how strongly you desire that. Man, that is, a, that is a contradiction to everything right. That is disobedient to the word of God and you're going to make a mess and hurt and harm and do some things that are going to be majored self-destructive for you and horribly wounding a lot of other people. What are you thinking? You need to repent, man. That's incest. That, that's inappropriate. That's outs and, and this is the kind of friend you need at a time like this, not somebody that encourages your sinful desires. And gives you suggestions how you can justify and fulfill them. So he says, put together this idea. Well, Amnon, because he's emboldened with strong, lustful desire, it says, conceded to this idea. Amnon lay down, verse 6, pretended to be ill. And when the king came to him, Amnon said to his father, please, let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. 
And David sent home to Tamar saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Again, maybe she was like a great baker and just, you know, this whole thing of, you know, she brought by a little home cooked meal. Again, she was someone in the family who was a blessing in this way. There's complete naivety and innocence in this on the end of those who are not in the know of what's going on. So Tamar, verse 8, went to her brother Amnon's house as he was lying down, and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat, and Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me, and they all went out from him. So he now dismisses all the servants, everyone else out of the house. He wants to be alone with Tamar so that he can take advantage of her in this situation. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom. That's always a bad indication that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now, when she had brought them in to him to eat, he took hold of her, being stronger than her, probably grabbed her by the arm in some way, and said, come, lie with me, my sister. Now, how disgusting is that right there? Come to bed with me, have sexual relationship with me, my sister. Commanding her forcibly to have sexual relations with him in a form of incest. Verse 12, but she answered clearly, no, my brother, do not force me. For such things should not be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So at this point, he's now forcing himself upon her. She starts trying to challenge him regarding, notice, the damaging consequences that this sinful action could result in. She says to him, please, no, right away. She begs him not to do this and indicates it was common knowledge. She said, everyone knows in Israel that this is wrong. This should not be done in Israel. This is inappropriate. This is sinful. And something, she says, is going to lead to disgrace, she says. In many ways, don't do this disgraceful thing. She's saying, you're going to disgrace yourself. And you're going to disgrace me and disgrace our family and, and disgrace God by doing such a thing. And, and she says to him, you're going to rob me of a, of a future. You're going to bring shame upon me. And again, for a, a virgin to be shamed and to lose her purity in that day in the culture, in many ways, sometimes guaranteed that she would be unmarriable, that no one would ever want anything to do with her ever again. So this is a great loss that will come to her for him to just fulfill his momentary satisfaction in this inappropriate way i think at the end of verse 13 she's just begging in survival mode she says please speak to the king he won't withhold me so she says look stop at least at least ask the king that we could be married first now i don't think she sincerely wanted to marry the guy quite frankly i think this is just a woman in survival mode doing anything she can to talk down someone who's about to rape her because she's thinking anything i can do to stop your advances I'm willing to try anything. And so she's begging to try and be spared in this situation. However, verse 14, he would not heed her voice and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. So the sin of rape right there in the Bible, he forcibly takes from her sexual pleasure without her consent in any capacity. He assaults her sexually. 
He rapes her, a grievous sin, not only something that is unhealthy and displeasing to God, but unlawful as well. So he criminally violates her, abuses her sexually, takes advantage of her. And then notice verse 15, Amnon hated her exceedingly so that hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her, and he called the servant who attended him and said, Here, put this, notice he just calls her now, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now, now notice, you can tell the, the complete evil in this man's heart, nothing to do with love. This is called lust. Because the moment he gratifies himself sexually with her, which was the thing that he was predominantly after, he might have used the word love. He might have even have thought he loved her. Quite frankly, sin's deceptive. But it's complete lust because the moment he fulfills himself, notice, he instantly wants to just dispose of her because she's now been conquered and he wants to move on to the next challenge. And as soon as he fulfills himself with her by raping and taking advantage of her sexually in this inappropriate way, it says that he wants her removed from his presence. Because why? Because now at this point, she's a reminder to him of his guilt. So now for her to be around, all she reminds him of is the evil and the guilt that he's done. So he wants to just dispose of her now that he's disgraced her, he just wants her purged from his side. He says, get rid of this woman, kick her out of the house, get her out of here. And listen, let me just say, ladies, if you don't know, you need to know. There are men who have nothing other than a selfish agenda in mind sometimes. And don't let any words or any compromising situation put you in a place to whatever degree you can where you make yourself vulnerable. Pigs exist, and they're not just in pig pets. And, and here this man does this horrible thing, and not only that, but with his own sister, which again, the Bible shows rape, the Bible shows sexual abuse within families, this horrible thing taking place, the depravity of man. Now she had on, it says, a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out, bolted the door behind her and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. So she just disgraced, dishonored, ashes on her head, rips this special robe that the king's daughters would wear to validate that they were a princess and that they were a, still a pure virgin woman. This has been torn from her, so she rips her robe as an expression of that. And it says she walks away just convulsing, crying, weeping, bitterly weeping. And verse 20 says, Absalom, her brother, said to her, seeing her coming in this condition, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. So Absalom, it seems, had perceived something was unhealthy from the start. And right away, as soon as he sees his sister, the first words out of his mouth, it was Amnon, wasn't it? And right away, it seems that he discerns the fox and who the, the one was that had done this horrible thing to her. And he says, listen, hold your peace he's your brother let's not make a scandal out of this 
and, and he says, D -d -d just let, let's wait and see how to resolve this situation. And look at verse 21. We'll close up with this this evening. It says, but when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. Now, I want you to notice that is a right response. David was angry. When David heard that one of his sons had raped one of his daughters, David was angry. Now, the sad thing is David's angry over what happens, but he never deals with it. He's justifiably angry over what took place, which is immoral and sinful and more than that, criminal, but he never deals with it. The question becomes, why? Is it because David felt so incapacitated from his own guilt, from his own poor decisions that he felt like, who am I? to challenge someone else after what I've done. Now listen, he might have felt that way, but that still is not a right response. And we're going to see as we go on in the chapters ahead, David is angry, but David does not deal with the sin. He ignores it and he kind of dismisses it. And David's failure to confront sin in his son's life as a father and David's failure to confront sin as a leader only leads to bigger problems. It only leads to bigger problems. And we'll see this in the chapters ahead, the deterioration it causes to the family life and the, the, the destructive things that follow even after this that begin to take place. And, and I want to say this as we close tonight. Listen, horrible things happen in this life. The, the sinfulness and the depravity of our capability of human beings is quite honestly shocking. Shocking. However, that being said, when something wrong happens, you can't brush it under the rug. You can't just ignore it and dismiss it. You got to confront it head on and deal with it. That is the best possible chance for help and healing and resolution to come to pass. Covering stuff up and ignoring it never, ever, ever does anything but cause bigger problems. When sin happens, address it. Let's stand, let's pray.